Hey, everybody, I'm Paul Wilkie. And I'm David Oro. And you're listening to The Embargo, the greatest PR podcast of all time. Damn straight. There's always something to talk about and a point to make. And we're going to do it when we want, which is usually every other week. Whether it's tech, business, sports, music, or your mama, we're going to cover it. All of it comes from the point of view of public relations, reputation, and communications. Today is Thursday, September 15th, 2022. Welcome to The Embargoed with my co-host, Paul Wilkie. Paul, how you doing? I'm good, David. How you doing? Doing all right. Listen, we uh, this is the first time we've done international shows before. We've done all the way to New Zealand and Australia, bottom of the earth. Today, we're recording early because we have our guest from London. Uh, his name is Andy Abramson. Abramson. I said it right. And this is going to be a fun one because we're talking comms, which we always talk about, but there's also involved wine, cars, and sports. This is this guy's background, and uh, we're excited to have him on the show today. And, you know, Andy, th- I, you welcome to the show, first of all, Andy. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. I'm looking forward to it because I've listened to some of your shows, and it reminds me of my old days of World Tech Roundup that Ken Rakowski and I did for about 13 years together in the early days of podcasting. There wasn't even a pod to cast. We just streamed. <laughs> so you had professionalism thrown out the door as well, right? So Absolutely. <laughs> well, thrown out the door. We didn't even let it in the door. <laughs> we were kind of that way. So listen, tell us a little bit about yourself. I kind of hinted at, at a few things that you are involved with, but... Um, it's actually pretty impressive. And I'm like, wow, you've been having a lot of fun along the way and you're obviously still working. So you must be having a blast. Can you give us a little, the audience a little bit of background on what you do? And- you know, I, I, I tell people I've never worked a day in my life. I've had fun every day. And even on the most stressful days in PR and corporate crisis management, it's still fun to me. Uh, I started out way too early. I was 14 years old. I got hired to stuff tickets in a pro sports team, in Philadelphia Wings and Philadelphia's ticket office when I was 14 by the owner because I sold him an ad for my high school junior high school yearbook and two weeks later they hired a PR director a guy named Cy Roseman who was literally my mentor and he said forget about stuffing tickets you're going to work for me in the PR department and my last assistant's now director of production at the spectrum I said sounds good to me and he so I started doing the stats I started stuffing press releases in um, envelopes so I my joke used to be I went from tickets to news releases, and then I started to deliver them, and that's how I got to know the media, and I learned at 14 how to talk to media and how to work with media, so much so that I was actually asked by media during games, is there something we missed, and I learned how to pitch an angle. Now, I didn't know I was doing that. I just did what came naturally. The reporters thought, oh, here's some 14-year-old kid. We'll get some stuff, but I already knew about discretion. And as time went on, um, I ran a division of the Philadelphia Flyers called Hockey Central, building 25 programs, some of which still exist to this day. And I've been gone 33 years. Uh, that'll tell you how I build programs that can last last longer than you, which is what you have to do when you build properties. Uh, that was like the Flyers Cup and the Keystone Games and Pennsylvania Cup, a uh, bunch of other things, Mites on Ice House Leagues. And as time went on, um, I moved corporately to Upper Deck. I did a little stint with the Denver Nuggets, helped them get sold, which was really my first foray into getting a team, getting something sold. I didn't realize I was doing it, but I did it. But I also realized I've been working with startups all my life and, you know, went over to the Upper Deck company, to sports marketing, 
And then in 1993, I started my own shop and haven't looked back and have been guest CMOing, as I like to say, um, in a bunch of companies as well. And that's kind of my career in a nutshell. But I've done sports. I've done entertainment. I've done tons of telecom, uh, especially voice over IP and mobile. We've got 56 exits under our belt uh, for about $6 billion. And we'll talk all about that kind of stuff as well and some other fun things we've done. I mean, I've had a fun career and I'm not done yet. You know, it's interesting. We had a sports, uh, uh, Kevin, our, our original co-host here, was wanted to get into sports PR. And we actually had the former PR director for the San Diego Chargers on one of our episodes here. And it's an amazing, to me, it's like you're, you're close to stardom, but you're doing a lot of the same communication things of finding news stories, telling angles, sitting out press releases, doing, creating collateral and all that. Uh, you must love it because obviously the one thing that is a knock on that, those guys, apparently it's not the same kind of pay rate for people that are in like the tech industry or others on the, on that front. I guess it's a little bit lower, but the fame. <laughs> no, you get paid a lot less in sports. Um, yeah. The athletes make the money and the owners make the money. Yeah. You, you literally, if you do your job right, you have a job for life in most organizations, except the ones that are owned by like large corporations now and hedge funds. Yeah. The family owned sports businesses, people have been there for 25, 30 years. I'm sure had I stuck around, I would have stuck around until Ed Snyder passed away uh, with the Flyers, but I made the decision to leave when I was about 28, 29 to join the Denver Nuggets. And the reality is that you do a lot more. And I like to say that sports PR, at least what I did, and it wasn't really, it was PR, it was communications, it was media relations, it was event development, is more like integrated marketing than it is true publicity. And there's a big misnomer, I think, in the whole world that all public relations practitioners do is publicity. And we don't. We do a lot more than that. And and everybody thinks all we do is pitch stories. And and we don't. We, we, we're actually more set up to deliver value. And that's why I call what we do value creation communication at Communicano. What we're more about is creating that value that directly affects the sale price of a business or the ability of a product to get sold or an ecosystem partnership to come in, which boosts your enterprise value. And that's doing everything that's above the line before you pay for advertising. And a lot of people mistake the fact that PR practitioners don't understand advertising. I would say the smart ones do. We just understand how to get it for free. <laughs> hey, that's a good one. I like that nice. one. <laughs> one of the things that, that fascinated me looking through your through your bio was you know your sports PR experience, your trading card experience, corporate wine. You know you, you, you run the gamut. And and one of the things that I know, at least with 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 people of my age and and PR people, and David, I think you're the same way. I think we're all failed. We all failed. We all wanted to get into sports PR, and we just weren't able to. But um, so my question is, what what possessed you to leave the sports PR business? Show me the money. <laughs> <laughs> no, what, here's what happened. Um, you get to a point where I've been. I was with the Flyers at that point, almost thirteen and a half years. I was twenty eight and a half years old. I had built their entire what's called fan today it would be called fan development so the entire time i was there 
the mission that was handed down to me by Ed Snyder and his business partner, Aaron Siegel, still alive and like another uncle to me, was to promote, stimulate, and develop interest in the sport of youth hockey in the Delaware Valley. And Ed's untold story was if you get kids playing hockey, their parents will take them to games. And then when the kids grow up, they will continue to go to games. And you ensure the longevity of your season ticket base. And up until the time of Comcast taking control of the Flyers, that was a very true story. But the programs obviously started to be eliminated and the love and care that we had given the youth hockey community for well over 20 years, because they continued you know, well past the time I left. But things like the Flyers Cup that I created Literally, when I say I created it, I, cre I can remember the arguments with some of the high school hockey league presidents who couldn't understand why giving them 50% of the gate for one league, 25% to the other and 25% to the other, and we weren't taking anything, was a good deal. Literally, the hours I, I spent convincing one league president to agree to the Flyers Cup. Now, that was 1979 80 it's now 2022. So 42 years later, there's still a Flyers Cup and people are still making money and the Flyers get nothing from it. Mm -hmm. um, doing the little things with the kids on the ice called Mites on Ice and having an argument with Phil Esposito over a locker room um, and having to remind Phil that, yes, Phil, I'm the same person that kicked you out of the locker room on May 19th, 1974. And I, the Flyers beat Boston Bruins for the Stanley Cup for the afternoon they did that and I needed them to leave because my lacrosse team the Philadelphia Wings I was working for at 14 have a vision. was coming in to play the game that night at 7 30 and the players were lining up and they were saying Opie get us in the blanking locker room I'm like I'm the only person from management in the building at this point and everybody else is either partying with Ed Snyder and Joe Scott and Fitz Dixon in the director's lounge or they're stuck in the parking lot trying to get in because it was bedlam so, yeah, I've had fun doing things. And the Mites on Ice still exist. And the house leagues that we created are now under the umbrella of Snyder Hockey. But the, no one knows the work that I did, not that much, behind the scenes to make these things possible from a PR background, from an events background, from a business background. And at a, at a certain point in time, um, a dear friend of mine to this day, Andy Pock, was selling sponsorships for us in New York. As we were doing Celebrity All-Star Hockey Game, we we're going to do something that had never been done before. We were going to bring in the Celebrity All-Stars, which at the time were the late Alex Trebek, the late Alan Thicke, the late John Saunders, Matthew Perry, Jason Priestley, Richard Dean Anderson was MacGyver, the original MacGyver. The Olympians like Mike Ruzioni, Jimmy Craig, Jack O'Callaghan, Eric Strobel, Jerry Hauser from Slapshot, Killer Carlson and Slapshot, who was also in the Brady Brides, who's still a friend of this day. And we we're going to bring them in to play a game against the Flyers alumni without an NHL game behind it. And everyone goes, you're nuts. It's not, you're not going to sell a ticket. You're not going to sell a sponsorship. And I knew I had, a, I knew I had a home run. I knew I had a hat trick. And Andy looked at me and she said, we had this joke, which was her, it was a guy named Armando Fitz, a former football player from middle Tennessee. And I, we'd run around New York there to sell sponsorships or trying to, and we did. And she said, you're not being appreciated for how good you are. Take the opportunity when it comes and leave. And I did. And she was right. And then I went to work with my friend, John Gardner, who's a former quarterback behind Joe Theismann at Notre Dame, who was one of the top salespeople I ever knew in my life. May he rest in peace. John said, come work for me in Denver and help me build an organization there. And I went. 
And then unfortunately, the team got sold when we were there less than nine months after being there. And that's when I went back and I joined Footcomb Belding. I took over the Celebrity All-Star Hockey team and the rest was history there. And then we all went upper deck. So things happen for a reason. But why did I leave an organization like that? Well, one, you don't make a lot of money working in pro sports. You get a lot of benefits. You get out all the speeding tickets you get in town. You can park your car anywhere. Um, <laughs> you, you, you're welcome at any nightclub. Um, you know, literally, I got over. Who do you work for? Throw off your flyers. Oh, see ya. Because we used to use the police for traffic uh, work at all our games. But the reality is that you don't make a lot of money in sports unless you're a player or an owner or a GM or a coach. Everybody else, salaries are below scale unless you're just somebody who the owner feels is unbelievable and cannot leave. And usually that person is making sure nobody else makes any money. It's time to leave at 28. Andy, you know, the sports teams, it's a lot of it is family business, right? And if you are in the private sector working in a family business, yes, there's going to be people that are paid well, that are super valuable to the company. Um, but unless you're part of the family, you're probably not going to get paid that well, right? And so, you know, you're doing a private sector corporate company where <laughs> it isn't a family business. You might this pay scale is a little bit better, I think. Yeah. Right. You know. So, so the the irony was that the people who owned the Nuggets also came out of the TV business. They owned uh, uh, WFBS in Miami and WG something in Philadelphia. I won't tell you what FBS stands for, but you can probably figure out what the WF world's blanking, blanking, blanking stands for. <laughs> they were used to paying people really good money. And John said to me, he goes, you're going to make more money here than you ever did. And I was making about 27000 a year, I remember, for the Flyers in 1988. And my base was triple that. But my commission structure was almost 10 times that. And literally, when I went back to college, my line to my professor who couldn't, whose class was sold out, and I needed to go back because I want to finish my degree. He said, well, you know, my class is already three students over. I said, I don't care how many students giving up a job between $250,000 and $275,000 in front of them. He goes, okay, you're in. Yeah. <laughs> and we became good friends. So it wasn't true that people don't make money in sports. If you're on the sales side of sponsorship and yeah, on that side, there's yeah. money to be made. And that's where I learned to sell. And that's where I learned to make money. Yeah. So, okay. So you're doing the sales. What I want to talk to you about a little bit is, is the, the, this notion of starting out in PR, but you're also, you've had roles as a CMO. And there's a lot of PR professionals who just kind of stay on that corporate communications track. You know, they created this new role in the last 10 to 15 years called the chief communications officers, right? Which is, which is, you know, I, I think it's a fair distinction because communications sometimes isn't doing a lot of marketing, but you're holding that CMO role. And there's a lot of people in this profession that want to, can't figure out how to make, make it to that CMO level. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you're doing that and what it takes to get to that? Well, I, I think, let me first address the chief communications officer title. That's largely a result of the fight between people like the investor relations person, the PR director, and the CMO. And the PR person has never had a seat at the table. If you think about it, in enterprise companies and large corporations, other than some of the more European-centric groups like Nokia did have a senior communications person on their 
executive council every week. The PR practitioner has never been the director of PR, the VP of PR, VP of communications, never had that seat. He was always reporting to someone else, chief operating officer, uh, CFO, um, maybe the CEO, but he still didn't have a seat at the table or she didn't have a seat at the table. It's like a silent so seat chief, at the table in some cases. What's that? It was like a silent seat at the table in some yeah, cases. Sli- yeah. The, but the elevation of the importance of communications in companies, especially with the advent of the internet, it became a whole different ballgame. And I'm not talking so much even about the rise of social media because social media is, is a phenomenon that keeps uh, keeps evolving and becomes more and more a paid function and less and less a PR function over time. Mm-hmm. But companies decided to give that person a seat at the table. And largely, it was also because of the opportunity to promote someone who would solve another problem at the executive suite, which was either um, color or gender. And so a lot of this happened at a time where there was, rightfully so, a movement in those directions for the advancement of others to the executive suite. And they were able to do that. And then more importantly, there were longstanding loyal soldiers in the company who knew more than any of the newcomers. So why wouldn't you want that veteran, male or female, at the table when you're making important business decisions? To your question about how do you cross the line from being in the PR world to the marketing world, I like jokingly say I'm an advertising guy inside a PR man's body. Yeah, I know how to do PR and how to pitch a story, um, but my degrees in advertising, I spent time with Footcomb Building and the average in their impact division, which was integrated marketing. At Upper Deck, I was running sports marketing, which was largely paid. So that's on the advertising side, but I was also running PR. And the funny thing was, I wasn't hired to go to Upper Deck to run PR. I'm sitting in a meeting one day with a bunch of the brand managers and the VP and our agency at the time, Verse and Marstell, and their team from LA. And the only person who knew how to make sense out of what was being talked about was me. So they quickly changed me from the head director of sports marketing, manager of sports marketing and promotions to manager of sports marketing and public relations, literally before my business cards got printed because I was only there a day. And I think that a lot of PR people do understand marketing. They do understand advertising. They do understand the numbers and they do understand how to grow a brand. And, you know, I've been fortunate for the, the three companies that I've now held the CMO title for, it's more about building the brand than owning the number. Owning the number is owned by sales in two of the cases. Um, a lot of times you have to own the number. I am the first one to admit I don't want to own the number. I'm on the, I like to jokingly say there's income and expense. Marketing's on the expense side, not. but we're responsible for bringing in the income by telling the story the right way. So you have to have an understanding of profit and loss. You have to understanding of income and expenses. And you also have to think about how you articulate your story and your brand message. And there's no better person than someone who's come up from the PR side to fit with a background in advertising to build a brand story. So I think where the big holdup, particularly um, in this modern digital age, 
I think a lot of investment is going towards digital marketing these days and PR people ne don't necessarily, they, they see it, they work with it and they could probably jump on any Marketo or platform tool to get qualified leads in and all of this stuff there. But it, it's something that if you're in a sales heavy organization and you're wanting leads, 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 it's something that PR people don't touch, you know, a lot of, but you know, if you get some good press, leads are coming in. <laughs> right. Well, the, the fact is that the very first place a person who considers interacting with a business looks is the about us. Who are these people? Mm. Then the second place they go is the news section. What kind of coverage have they gotten? Then the third is who's the team behind the business. Those are the places they go before they look at the product. You know, sophisticated buyers. So whether it's the work I did with SkySwitch and they got sold for a ridiculous amount. The founders were all very happy, especially the lead founder or Fonative that got bought by Finvi and an astronomical exit based on what was invested. And now what I'm doing with ERA at building their foundation of their brand and telling their story and getting starting to get media coverage and all the things that we want. Because PR always happens before promotion and then PR occurs before you start spending. It's very foolish that you see, you're talking about digital marketing. If you don't have anything to actually sell, if you don't have a product to take an order for, all the digital marketing is like opening up a window and throwing a laundry basket of $100 bills out the window because people are very fickle. And if you start trying to sell them before you have a product to sell, what have you done? You've only opened the door. I, liked, I was having this conversation with a, another PR pro yesterday. I said, have you ever watched a NASCAR race? And are you familiar with the concept of drafting? Well, all you do is if you become the category captain, the first one in, and you keep telling everybody a story, and you have nothing to sell. Somebody else comes in with a lesser product and slips right by you. So you don't try and sell a product you can't sell. You build a brand first. Yeah, good point. So, so Andy, you sort of lead into one of the things we normally start with with a, with a guest. But, but tell us about what you're working on right now. So I'm business. working on probably the most exciting electric vehicle company in the world called Era. We're based in Milan, Italy. Um, we will be revealing an SUV in about a month's time. And then a few months later, we'll reveal a sedan. Uh, we'll go on sale in 2024, 2025 for delivery. That's how far out you have to be in the automobile business when you're building things to create platforms and decide what ecosystem partners you're going to bring on for things like batteries and entertainment systems and even down to the tires. So it, I'm building the, the screws. Brand or the screws, or the, screw, or the yeah. screws, or the power adapter that you're going to use. And ERA is redefining um, luxury. We're in the uh, high premium category, the ultra premium category. Cars are going to sell for between $160,000 and $180,000 US, which isn't a lot when you look at what some of the other brands are now talking about coming out with cars in a $300,000 range. Um, it's all electric. It's sustainable from the ground up. The designers have come out of uh, some brands that you've heard of, like Lamborghini and uh, Italian Design, which is a Audi group. Uh, Genesis, for, we've got a, a head of purchasing came out of Ferrari. So we've all these people are leaving other established Italian brands to come over to Era because we've got the designer from Lamborghini, uh, Filippo Perini, and. Uh, Lipo has been behind things like the Huracan and other legendary, legendary Lamborghini products. 
Alessandro Serra has been with him for 20 years. They've worked together at um, Lambeau and at uh, Genesis. So there's a whole, um, a whole consistency of great designers and we're a design-led company. And it's exciting to take a company from invisibility to visibility. And that's what I'm doing. I'm having fun. And right now, the biggest stuff I'm working on is, guess what? PR and events. Because at this stage of the company's life, that's what we should be doing. Not well, spending you, you money just, on... You just mentioned it earlier. You don't have something to sell, really, like a product to go sell. But you want to create some awareness around things and build excitement for it and lay the groundwork for when you're ready to pump out a bunch of fine Italian performance sports cars, I guess, that are electric. Yeah. I, I like well they're not sports cars they're going to be you know they're going to be super premium luxury cars we call it high premium or ultra premium what we're finding is that the audience is not just 50 year old men and up it's actually lower in the 40s it's women almost the, the ratio we just did some survey work and the ratio of men to women it's pretty close which again flies in the face of all the data that when I looked at the business plan a year ago so quite happy that we did a bunch of research with the Savanta folks to figure all this out. But I like to say that, you know, everybody has a story. It's who tells it for you. And that's what we're doing right now, getting other people to tell our story. That's exciting. I, I, are you spending a lot of time in Italy? A lot of time in Italy. I've spent a lot of time in London and less time at home in the last 12 months and have been enjoying. And so everybody says, how do you not gain weight? I said, it's all the work you're doing. And then when I come to London, I'm doing a lot of walking. So, so you're in London today. You go to Italy, and then your home base is back in Vegas for you. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Awesome. it is. Yeah, I, I I jokingly say, guys, that um, my home seat one F on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> I have my first business trip travel in two and a half years. Oh, uh, in two weeks, first time I'm traveling. And I'm leaving, I'm leaving SFO and I'm flying two hours and 40 minutes to the great city of Denver. <laughs> nice. It's going to be weird. I got to figure out my, you know, travel rhythm. Andy, I'm sure you have that all together. I, it, I have it down to a science. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. I've flown the Virgin flight from New York because I like to take the daytime flight. It really reduces the amount of jet lag you have. It's the best flight. You take it at least at 8.15 in the morning. It lands at 8 o'clock at night, usually a little early. If I didn't carry on bags, I would have been out the airport by 8.20 into my hotel by 9 o'clock. Well, with bags, it takes a little longer. But they changed the boarding procedure. Now, they made it faster, but it was a surprise. And I just flew it a month and a half ago or two months ago. They've changed. They're, all the airlines are changing things up. And so you have to expect a little bit i'm telling everybody who travels always plan to fly a little earlier than you used to um, always expect a delay and have a contingency plan now, i was named business traveler of the year in 2014 by business traveler magazine for how i travel not how much i travel and i love to talk to the travel reporters because i'm a probably a 10 million mile flyer at this point there's a lot changing in travel and it's not the same as it was. I've been flying around since 2020, December, 2020. Uh, but I, I can tell you guys that David and Paul, it is definitely not the same experience 
that you had if you haven't been flying because there have been steady changes in the way the airlines are working because they lost a lot of talented people. Mm. So they're having to uh, gear down to the talent that's working now and interacting with customers. And as I said to a GM friend of mine in the hotel business in San Francisco at the Intercontinental, because we were talking about the hotel experience of late, and I said, you're still paying the same or more, but you're not getting the experience you used to pay for. Yeah. And therein lies, that gap is what PR has to solve. The PR firms are not doing a good job, of, PR teams of hotels and airlines are not doing a good enough job of educating the people on the changes. Oh, yeah, during COVID. But COVID became the excuse for poor service. Yeah, yeah. And customers no longer expect can accept that. To yeah, the point no, where I'm doing it's a shame because they had an opportunity to, to to rewrite the narrative. You know, you had two years to craft a narrative that that tells the story of of what the tourism industry is going through and how how they're how instead of how service is changing, how it's evolving. Yeah, I, I've seen the frustration here. I mean, even here where I am, I'm I'm in a big tourist place uh, in Napa Valley, and you know just they're big on experience and doing that. But at the same time, lots of places are using it. The problem is you can't find good workers here and they right. just haven't come back, but the excuse is getting old and tired. And, and I'm a big champion of it. You know, I sit on the Napa Valley tourism board uh, of it, but even when I go out locally and I know like half the people, the patients, I could see it wearing thin on the consumer in all sectors, travel, wine, tourism, and, and it is going to dining in restaurants and stuff. It is. And and the unfortunate thing is you're being asked to pay the same amount <laughs> or more than you or did more before inflation. or more. Yeah. And you're getting a less than desirable experience. And if you complain, they get upset instead of realizing that the reason they have a job is on the other side of the table or the counter of the bar. And smart hoteliers, smart restaurateurs are quick to recognize a sophisticated customer and make sure the customer is appreciated versus, I mean, like my friend Jeffrey Strauss was Pompano's Grill in San Diego and Solana Beach. He put up a tent. He, When he had a close because of a fire, he made sure that Thanksgiving dinners were held for everybody by finding a place that, across the way at the racetrack. No one ever complains about their service from him because he didn't change a thing. He didn't change his people. Yeah. He paid them while the restaurant was closed for a fire. I call him the luckiest guy in the world. Um, he had a fire a week, a month before COVID hit, and he had to close the restaurant. And then when COVID had closed all the restaurants, he was covered by business interruption insurance, and all of his staff got paid the whole time. But he made sure that when they came back, same staff worked. The Intercontinental Hotel in San Francisco paid their staff while they were closed. The Intercontinental um, Avenue Monceau in Paris paid their people 75% and renovated so their staff would all be back. Now that's smart ownership. And they all found ways to cover the cost of keeping people. And the service experience in those places is no different. So a lot of it comes down to, and this is a PR problem, communicating to your workers that you should stick around. Yeah. You know, PR again, is not just publicity. It's um, it's internal communication as well. Andy, we're coming near the end here. I, I had one thing. I mentioned Napa Valley. Your resume also includes wine. What is that all about? 
So my good friend, Doug Marjoram, owns a Marjoram Wine Company, one day had an event um, and I had done a weekend trip with my then wife and a bunch of friends from Skype and my company. And Helena and I stuck around and I made a wine and everybody in this, it was make a wine with Doug Day. And he said to everybody, hey, if you want to see what an example is of a wine that you should make, taste Andy's. And then they did a blind tasting and it came in first with him. So we made half a barrel or we were supposed to make half a barrel and something happened. And his assistant winemaker used the juice that was supposed to go into my wine. So we had to make a different wine. So I drove up on a weekend, his birthday weekend, and hung out with him and his dog Patches on a Saturday morning. And is we this in Napa? Three... Is this in Napa? No, this is in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, okay. To me, Napa is a four-letter word. Um, <laughs> but um, we made we made a, a Syrah-based wine, 98% Syrah, 2% Grenache, of some of the best fruit in Santa Barbara, um, Colson Canyon. Um, oh God, I'm drawing um, Parisma, a couple different blends of Parisma Syrah, uh, Clone One, Clone 99, and a few other vineyards. And so I only made half a barrel, so that's about 150 bottles. And we took some to France, and Mark Williamson, who owns Willie's Wine Bar, was having lunch with us at the Découvert de Rhone in Gigandas, and we had a, ba- a bottle in a brown paper bag, and he's pouring a little bit off to different winemakers. Everyone's wondering what it was. He wouldn't say. And he just left the bottle. And then there's all this buzz. Why was this California wine so good here in Gigandas? And another friend took a bottle and put it into a blind tasting in the Languedoc against wines from the Roussillon Languedoc and the Rhone. And I was in, I can remember this day, I was in Madrid having dinner with my friend Tatiana. And I get this text. Can you give me a description about the wine? Can you tell me where it's from? Can you tell me where it is? My friend Bernard, who ran the tasting room at the uh, Languedoc, um, must have supported it. It's a big tasting. He's tasting it against all these amazing producers. And at the end of the night, as we're walking back to Tatiana's apartment, I get a text, Andy, the double-A cuvee came in first. Well, I didn't know who he was tasting against at the time. So I asked him the next morning, and then I was like blown away. And there's a video somewhere where he tells the story. So that led to me making wine. And then I got named the Grenache ambassador by the ambassador, by the Grenache Association. Tomorrow's International Grenache Day, by the way. Yay! And, yeah, and that's why I decided to make a wine in 2013 called the Ambassador's Blend. I also made a wine called the Hat Trick Special, which is an ode to the Philadelphia Flyers. I've been making wine since, I guess, 2010 for the 2009 yeah. vintage. And I have a lot of fun doing it. And we sell all we make. And usually the only place you can taste it other than at Tess in Los Angeles is if you're with me. Wow, good. Those are the best wines because I know Napa is a four-letter word for you, but you all the tourists that come up here end up getting the popular wines that are on the highway. But here in the valley, there's plenty of other wines that oh, are yeah. single row grapes, and they're all sold within the valley before anybody can get their hands on them. <laughs> I mean, things like Stagland, Harlan, uh, Bryant Family, Screaming Eagle, Colgan, uh, Cardinal, you've got wines, you've got Ladera makes killer wines. My friend Michael Keenan's wines are some of the best wines around and one of the best values in Napa Valley. Yeah, so some of those wines, yeah, I, the, the lists are small. The, the vineyards are really small, and it's always surprising to me the, the, where they came from. And I, I can't even get on them, right? They're, they're, they're other winemakers holding on to them for a long time. It's interesting. Your wine is kind of like that, right? you got to have the insider knowledge, you know? Philippe Melk is one of the top producers up there, top winemakers up there now. He's doing some really cool stuff. You've got, I mean, Napa wines are, are incredible. To me, it's about finding the next Napa constantly as I travel the world. 
Uh, I've been in Mexico. I've tasted wine in Valle de Guadalupe. I did started a wine marketing company with a partner. Um, I've been in Arizona tasting wines in the high desert. Uh, some amazing fruit from down there. Uh, Texas Hill Country, uh, New York State, Washington State, Walla Walla, all over California, Santa Barbara, Paso Robles, and then across Europe. So there's great wine everywhere. And to me, every bottle has a story, but it's about the underdiscovered wines and wine regions around the world where you really find something that you're really going to enjoy and it's special to you. And that's what I'm all about when it comes to wine. Well, you, you, you the, the big thing is what do you got to do with the flyers for anybody that's 21 and up? You got to keep these young kids off the white claw and start drinking the wines. <laughs> white, <laughs> claw, the <laughs> white claw, Zuma. I don't know. So I heard a story about white claw. I, yeah. To me, the, all that uh, carbonated fruit juice with alcohol is something that I don't understand. I, I'm a purist. I love my gin. I, I love mezcal. Yeah. Uh, those are the two spirits I'll drink when I have to have one. But at the end of the day, give me a good glass of wine that's made yep. by an artist and winemaker. And totally. there's a story behind it. And then you, and meet the winemaker and then do what I like to say, which is taste, touch, tell. Because every wine, you want to taste it. You want to touch the winery. You want to tell a story because every bottle has a story. Well, Paul, unless you have any other questions. No, man. It's, it, it's, been, it's been a worldwide whirlwind of a conversation with you, Andy. I think we, we covered just about everything. Corporate PR, wine, cars, sports. Uh, I think we, we, we missed fashion and crypto. I think we got everything else. I don't do fashion. I did fashion <laughs> once. We sold every product. It's called handcuffs. And, I'm, and, and Marshall's still my client and another business in real estate now. And the only thing we didn't talk about was Jeremy Pepper, who introduced us. Oh, yeah. Jeremy Pepper. We got to give a shout out to Jeremy Pepper. Jeremy was one of those guys in the... I met him in the early 2000s and the dude was just everywhere. And he was, I remember him being everywhere. And then he was also blogging, which was a new thing, which apparently, Andy, you got a story behind that. Yeah, Jeremy, I was doing the Nokia blogger program. So up until 2005, there wasn't a corporation that had either successfully penetrated social media, but more importantly, there wasn't a corporation in the Fortune 100 who dared to put their name on a social media program because bloggers were treated like, and I was a blogger, just like Jeremy. I had VoIP Watch, which was one of the most read telecom blogs at the time and for many years after, where we were treated like something on the bottom of your shoe that you pick up walking through the park because somebody else didn't pick up what they dropped or what was dropped. So Nokia asked me to start a review program, and I called it the Nokia Blogger Relations Program because they said, what are you going to call it? And I said, we're going to call it what it is. And within 24 hours of launching, it blew out the servers at Vario. Um, Everybody from Ohm Malik to Dana Blankenhorn had socialized it because he didn't tweet back then. There was no tweet. You wrote a blog post. Yeah. And um, the servers blew out so much that we had. I got a call from the Vario people saying, we need to move you to a different shared server. And then we need to move it to your own server by Monday. It's like, and I'm like, well, I don't have permission yet to do that, but okay. And I'll just build Nokia. And the program took off like a shot. The Washington Post credited me with Nokia sales fortunes changing. Uh, I don't count Nokia in one of our exits, not fair. And we ended up having some of the top reporters of the future I'd picked. Ohm Malik, who you probably all remember from yep. Giga Ohm. Yep. Michael Arrington, that yep. just launched TechCrunch. He was in it. A guy named Alex Saunders, who's now running sustainability at Microsoft, who was a blogger in Canada. Uh, Rich Tarani, who ended up owning TMCNet in the telecom space, was really big. And a bunch of other people um, in the industry, uh, Kevin Toffel, who at that time was with JK on the run, who's now got his About Chromebook blog and 
got acquired by GigaOM. Matt Miller from ZDNet, who otherwise known as Palm Solo. And these guys were all in the program. And Jeremy was another one of the bloggers I put in the program. Yeah. And Jeremy wrote an article on his blog about why Nokia was getting it right compared to everybody else. And I'll never forget, a few months after we did our program, Sprint did theirs. Right. And where we sent everybody a gorgeous box with a box inside that you opened up. There was a handwritten letter on parchment paper. And then you had your disk of all your materials and you had your phone. What did Sprint do? They took a phone, shoved it in a brown manila envelope and mailed them out with a note saying for more information or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else did a computer program almost the same way as Sprint. And one by one, people started to realize that this Nokia program had a lot of gravitas. And we did that for six years with Nokia. And it was one of the most successful things ever done. And it was I was hiring a firm in Australia for TruePhone about 2012, 2013. And the founder of the company, when we finally had dinner, Michael something or other, he said, you know, after we started getting digging into this, we didn't realize that you're the father of Nokia's social media. That's the seminal program for blogger relations. And I'm like, I mm, guess so, you know, because to me, it was just doing like you guys doing another program for a couple. Yeah, just trying something was, new, right? Breaking new ground. getting, your, getting That's what I like to do. That's a, you guys are great. I love your show. If I'm ever up in the Bay Area, if I'm in Napa, we should get together, Dave. Drink some wine. Well, you know, everybody goes to Vegas, so now I got a place to not hit up. Hey, if man. you're there and see, if you're there in CES time, I will be around. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll have a table at some restaurant with some bottle of wine open. Yeah, right on. Well, thank you, Andy, for being on the show. Thank you, guys. This is always been fun. Uh, we will catch you guys next time. Catch you later. Thanks, everyone. Bye.